Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Are we live, Lauren? We are live with Gross Anatomy Podcast, where we explore the sights, smells, and sounds of medicine and how it pertains to pop culture, meaning books, movies, TV, and the world around us. And I'm Dr. Jason Cohen. Today, that's who I am today. And who are you, Lauren? I'm Lauren Taylor. And today we have a very special guest. Dr. Steve Rad is with us. Yes, who I had to beg to, to come on the show. And <laughs> so, so actually, I've been begging you actually to join our practice, but that's a whole other thing. But so you're, um, I've, I've known, how long have you been at the hospital here? Oh man, I've been at Cedar since about 2007. You're an OBGYN? Yeah, so I'm an OBGYN, but with subspecialty training in uh, maternal fetal medicine, which is also known as high-risk pregnancies or perinatology or perinatologist. It goes by uh, multiple names. So you're, you're the, you're the like go-to guy when, when maybe there's like some major issue with like, like why would someone even call you? Yeah. So we work with the general um, obstetricians um, in the event of a complication with the fetus or the mother. So um, Periatologists, um, we play a role in the office as well as in the hospital. So it depends on where we're being uh, called to help. Um, in uh, the office, we're seeing both low and high risk patients. Um, one role we play is, so our surgery, you know, again, it's called maternal and fetal medicine. From a fetal perspective, we are doing ultrasounds, detailed ultrasounds to look for birth defects in the fetuses and should there be any birth defects found, then we follow those uh, women closely, those fetuses closely to manage them during the pregnancy. Birth defects can be in, involve any organ from head to toe. So you, um, you deal with some sad, sad, upsetting stuff then? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the majority, thank God, majority of um, uh, patients are uh, don't have birth defects, but we do get referred for, you know, all the abnormalities as well. And so a big part of our practice is dealing with abnormalities, so it can be sad, yeah. And so we deal with fetal abnormalities. We also deal with, um, I also like to break it down between the mother, the fetus, and the placenta is an often way we break things down. And so we also deal with placental abnormalities. You may have heard of something like placenta previa or placenta accreta. Um, we deal with fluid abnormalities with the uh, fetus or the amniotic fluid if it's too much or too little. Um, and then we deal with any maternal uh, abnormalities. So in the office, this could be patients who have pre-existing medical conditions, whether it be a straightforward as something like chronic hypertension or pre-pregnancy diabetes, um, to thyroid disease, to more complicated situations like women with, uh, you know, severe renal disease or um, different rheumatologic conditions, cardiac conditions, and they're pregnant. We also take care of um, complications that can occur with a mom as a result of the pregnancy. So there's pre-pregnancy complications and there's or pre-existing conditions, and then there's the pregnancy-associated uh, maternal complications, such as gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. What what these days is considered like an old mom? Like like what age is considered an old mom? Yeah, so traditionally over thirty five is considered what we call advanced maternal age, but that's become kind of the norm now. Actually, it's surprising to me if I see a younger uh, patient. <laughs> 
um, especially uh, in the community we practice in. Um, to me, you know, older uh, advanced maternal age is, those by definition, is over 35. Over 40 or 45 is, you know, an, considered an older. Is there age. a certain age of a mom that automatically they're like, oh, you need a guy like Steve Rad on board? Yeah, I would say that 40 plus three. So, so pretty much any woman having a baby, at least in the L.A. area, sees someone like you during their pregnancy? Correct. We see also the low-risk patients. So one thing to understand is good that you ask that. So what you're saying, like low-risk, under 40 or under 35, are st- still at risk of developing, you know, complications. Birth defects, genetic abnormalities in the fetus, placenta abnormalities, conditions of the mom. This can happen at any age. So, um, or if it's not there to begin with, it's something, there is always a potential for pregnancy to become high risk. So, so generally, you'll see your general OB, and then they'll send you to uh, the perinatologist for your ultrasound, and, in the, and then you get to know the perinatologist, and in the event something were to come up later in the pregnancy, you've already established your relationship. You're the perinatologist? Then, yeah, so that's the MFM, maternal fetal medicine, perinatology, high-risk OB, they're all, they're all Peri- Perinatologist sounds so much sexier and better. Yeah. <laughs> The newer name, we're trying to move towards calling it maternal fetal medicine. Um, but, uh, you know, because people still know it as perinatology, we go by that too. Why are you trying to change the name? Branding? Um, uh, it's just a newer, uh, well, since I've been practicing, it's been the, what newer nomenclature. Also, maternal and fetal medicine to denote, to explain that we deal with both the mother and fetus. And... So, and what you guys do is you guys are the experts at the ultrasounds, looking at the ultrasounds and telling if there are things wrong with the baby, right? Right, right. And then if you, exactly. And so we do detailed ultrasounds to look for birth defects. Um, and this can be done as early as 11 weeks gestational age now. So, so it's a very imaging dependent field. Like it's, it's like you guys are like probably some of the best ultrasound people on the planet, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Because, um, you know, you can do an ultrasound of a adult liver or kidney as well, but it's not moving around. There's not much, uh, you know, there's very limited things you need to look at with like a kidney or liver. When it comes to the fetus, you need to know every organ or every gestational age and you have a moving object. So have you ever done an ultrasound when the woman doesn't know something's wrong and you're like, oh my God, I, I see something wrong here? Yeah, yeah, it's actually, believe it or not, kind of stressful for us because we hate giving bad news and um, and it's not um, it's not easy, you know, giving, you know, people come to our office, everyone's kind of nervous because they know that we might find something. Um, the birth defect rate is probably about just about like 5% or so. So fortunately, majority of the time things are fine. That sounds um, high, 5%. Yeah, but it's about around 5% or less, yeah. Okay. And so people don't, you know, everyone comes in very nervous and it's such a sensitive topic and, you know, to give someone bad news when it comes to dealing with like new life, it's, it's very hard. Do you find, do you consider yourself good at that? Um, yeah. And, you know, you, and the unfortunate other thing is that you have to do your ultrasound and then really wait to the end 
to give them the news because let's say you find a heart defect, you want to make sure that there's no other defects in any other organ before you let them know uh, that there's a, a defect in them. Because A, they'll stop listening. B, you have to complete do a complete ultrasound to see if there's any additional abnormalities that might change the prognosis and genetic implications and next steps. And so if you give give it away in the beginning or in the middle, whenever you find it, um, then, uh, you know, the rest of the time she's probably crying or keeps asking you questions and you can't finish. And you also can't give proper answers because you don't know the full extent of things. And then you, a big part of your job is kind of probably being therapist and counselor, right? I oh, mean- absolutely. I mean, then once you give them the bad news and it goes, you know, into a whole new level of just sitting down with them and talking to them and, and running through different scenarios with them and next steps and getting multidisciplinary care involved. It, does it ever happen where you see something and it turns out you're wrong, either good or bad, either way? Or um, We try to be very careful before we give anybody bad news. And if, if you can't tell, then we have to also be honest and say like, okay, you know, I'm not sure that there's, um, you know, there might be something wrong with the uh, heart or the intestine. Uh, or the kidney, I'm not getting good views. We have them walk around sometimes or change positions. Um, or, you know, you say something like kind of borderline or I'm not sure, I want you to come back in a few days or a week and let's take a look again. And sometimes you're in that situation, but you have to be a hundred. I mean, if you're going to give someone bad news, you better be a hundred percent sure. What made you decide to go into this field? Um, I actually saw, had no intention of going into this field until I started medical school. What did and, you think you were going to do? Um, I was actually thinking of becoming an oncologist or surgical oncologist, actually, kind of like you. Yeah. So I went to UCLA for med school and I skipped, I skipped a few grades. So I was probably like when I, 20 years old and I started med school. And the first week, first or second week of med school, all the different clubs come. To, to meet all the new, you know, freshman first year students and the OBGYN club came and they offered us to go to labor and delivery one night at UCLA, the old, old hospital and um, shadow and see some deliveries or whatever comes up that night to be on call with them basically. As a college student or med student? No, no, med student. First year, okay. first was like first week of med school, first or second week of med school. So, um. I'm like, okay, that would be cool. You know, I can tell my friends and family. I could tell my mom I went and saw a birth or something, you know. So I went that night and I saw a birth and I was like, wow, this is really amazing. Okay, I never thought about this. And they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I'm thinking of surgical oncology. And then they said, have you heard of gynecologic oncology? And I said, no. And so they started talking about gynonc and what amazing surgeons they are. and that um, telling me all about the field of OBGYN and the OB part and how you can do be primary, you know, you do a little primary care, a little office, you do OB, you do GYN, you can subspecialize in gynonc, and it's a little bit of everything, and you play a very special role, it's different than other physicians because you're dealing with women's health and new life, and and honestly, that night I was sold. There was also... Really? One of my men, one of the um, one of the professors who later became my mentor, he was an 
OBGYN. And I mean, like everyone did their research, probably half the school did their research with this professor. And I had heard so much about him. And I was just that night, I, they, they sold me. I swear, Jason, I went there that night just so I can tell my friends that I saw birth and tell my mom and tell, you know, just be cool. I was this like 20 year old kid. I just wanted to be cool and tell everyone that I saw a birth. And that night, complete. I was sold right away. Like I mean, from that day on, I wanted to be an OBGYN. Wow! Did you see many births that night? And then, um, I saw like five. Oh and, wow! Yeah, and then, then I got obsessed with gynecologic oncology, and I, um, that's what I wanted to do. And so, um, all of med school. I mean, I started doing research, and I got to know every gynonc program in the country, and where I want to go for residency. And then I did my sub eyes and I came to residency. Um, I ended up coming to Cedar Sinai for residency for OBGYN. And I was ready to become this badass, like, gynonc surgeon. And then um, the rotation started, you know, your intern year and second year. And what started, what I started to realize is that the, I did, the, the surgeries were absolutely, I mean, unbelievable. And, you know, um, they're great surgeons, especially the ones at Cedars, and and I love the surgery. But then, invariably, there's patients we would see them in follow up. They would be really sick. They'd be on chemo or radiation. They'd come back with like bowel obstructions. Nothing to do with the surgery, but their their disease would progress after the surgery, or their surgery was done. So now they're going on to get the chemo. And I said, and then in the meantime, we're delivering babies on your other rotations or when you're on call. And I said, wow, this is really, and then I went to some of their conferences and all they did was talk about like chemo and radiation. I'm like, wow, this is not what I had envisioned. I wanted to be a surgeon, you know, um, and I didn't really think of the oncology part and the, the cancer part. I just wanted to be a badass surgeon. In the meantime, I, uh, I started becoming, you know, really passionate and in love with the uh, obstetric side and then in maternal fetal medicine you still deal with that critical care aspect and, and it's really really high risk at times and life and death and just matter of seconds similar to when you're in the operating room and so you an ultrasound I feel like ultrasound every time you do an ultrasound is almost like uh, it's its own operation and it's, it's very technical you know I see because we do very detailed ultrasound I can tell you more about that but every it's a procedure in itself you know once you really get in depth into ultrasound you're really into it it's really magical and it's like a, doing an operation anyways so i started falling in love with the obstetric portion and i learned because here we're bringing in like it was like bringing a new life and everything's more on the positive side and then on the other side i was seeing all this like sick patients and it wasn't what i envisioned and so then I learned about fetal surgery, in utero fetal surgery, and then um, I started to fall in love with ultrasound and maternal fetal medicine, and I completely switched over. And then, um, I don't know if you have heard of fetal surgery and utero surgery, and I was just fascinated by that. I mean, <clears throat> if anything is more badass than an on- oncologic surgeon is doing in utero fetal surgery. Who does that surgery? So... There depends on where you are in the country or the world. Sometimes it's pediatric surgeons, but the majority of them are actually maternal fetal medicine specialists who then subspecialize in fetal surgery. So I started getting really into 
uh, falling in love with MFM and the fetus and in utero surgery. And um, I did my fellow, ended up staying at Cedars for fellowship. And then I went after uh, fellowship at Cedars, I went to UCSF at a big fetal center there. And they did fetal surgery there. And then, so you did you did fetal surgery. Yeah, I got I got to do participate. In, they have the um, um, fetal at the UCSF fetal center, which is where they which is one of the pioneers and where they invented fetal surgery. And then um, I did that. I was there for about a year, and I really wanted to come back to LA because I miss family and Cedars, and so. I came right back and then I How do you do my... fetal surgery? How do you even do that? Um, the majority of cases now originally originally it was open fetal surgery. Literally you open up the you do an X lap, you open up the maternal abdomen and then you open up the uterus like you're doing a C section. And so it's exactly you... like the setup is exactly like you're doing a C section? Yeah. Yes, but it's a more I mean, yeah. It, the setup is the same, but much bigger incisions and the uterus is much smaller. You're doing an early gestational ages. So um, that's and, the old and you way. open up the uterus. Yeah, the old way. This is the original way they were doing it as an open fetal surgery. And then uh, one common surgery is like spina bifida surgery. Um, so you manipulate the fetus. You do a small, not a huge incision on the uterus, but they did a small incision on the uterus, bring the fetal spine into view, and you usually use, they have this special stapler, which at the same time you're opening the uterus, it makes it also hemostatic. And then they bring in a pediatric neurosurgeon to repair the spina bifida. And then you close back the uterus and inject fluid back in. You have to wow. close back the amniotic sac. Nowadays... <clears throat> They still do open fetal surgery for spina bifida, but nowadays a lot of it's become more um, basically what they call fetoscopic, but it's very similar to, you know, it's like laparoscopic underwater. Um, and there are some newer techniques where they're putting in gas as well um, to, because the morbidity is much lower if you do, you know, minimally invasive. With now. scopes. Yeah, with scopes. Wait, so they go into the abdomen with a scope, the mom's abdomen with a scope? Yeah. And, and then, then they through the uterus. And they go through the uterus. So they're, they're, double very, scope. Like, they're very small. They're very small scopes. Wow. Have you done that? Have you had a chance to do that? Yeah. So so the most common procedures for something called twin to twin transfusion syndrome, where you have identical twins or sharing the placenta, one twin is getting more blood. Uh, or more share of the placenta or more blood flow to it than the other. One gets like fluid overloaded, one gets dehydrated, so to speak. And so you have to go and laser. Um, they have anastomosis between the blood vessels and the placenta. And anyways, you basically laser off these blood vessels and separate the circulations of the two twins. Um, and we got to do, I got to participate that in that when I was in uh, UCSF. How cool is that? Yeah, it's amazing. And the thing is that, so there's certain fetal centers throughout the country. There's not, um, and, and there's not so many of these cases that you need fetal surgery. And so um, it's not like a bread and butter kind of day-to-day -day thing. There's cases that come in. And so you need to be at a big fetal center or big referral center. And <clears throat> um, 
until a case comes in, you're doing, you know, general NFM. Um, and so I wanted to come, I ended up coming back to be with family and be, I miss Cedars a lot. You know, I, never, I was here since the med, med student. Once you leave, it's very different out there. So I really wanted to come back. So you don't do that stuff. So no, I don't do that stuff. I always, it's still, it's still, I, I mean, I watch it all the time online or I, we used to be able to go shadow um, one of the surgeons out here, Dr. Schmite, he's amazing out at, he's in Pasadena now, um, and is associated with USC. Um, and then I, I go, I've done inter, some international sort of rotations in London where I got to, uh, observe some of the cases as well. I always joke around that I want to go back for a fellowship for just a year or two. Um, they have programs, then I'd have to leave everyone again behind again. And then you'd have to leave LA, right? Is there a major? I have to leave LA, LA and I have a family, and now things have changed. And so, but I, I always, I always believe it or not, think about it all the time. And you, but so you also deliver babies, right? You still do general OB. Yeah. So, so th- that's an important another thing you were talking about. You were you were mentioning earlier. So. When it comes, so we talk a little bit about what we do in the office and fetal surgery and how I got into it. And, um, and by the way, I think that, you know, I love MFM and I think everything happens for a reason. And it's very interesting how I ended up going into OB just from that one night and then switching over to MFM because I couldn't imagine. I mean, I, I love what I do and I'm great. I feel like I'm great at it <laughs> and I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, that I'm doing now. And so life is very interesting. I always tell the students and residents remind them that you have, you have no idea what you're going to end up doing. Anyways, other half of what we do in MFM is hospital based work. So we have um, get consulted to take care of patients, high risk patients in the hospital and um, patients can be in the hospital for multiple reasons. Um, Sometimes they're there the whole pregnancy. So for example, I have currently a patient um, in the hospital has been there for a couple of weeks because her, her baby isn't growing well and has fetal growth restrictions, some complications from that. So she's on continuous monitoring in the hospital and probably be there until the end of the pregnancy. And that hopefully she's there for a long time and, the, and doesn't get delivered early in preterm. Um, patients can be in the hospital for bleeding. They can be there for preeclampsia or high blood pressure pregnancy. Um, they can have uncontrolled diabetes, um, other placenta abnormalities, placenta accreta. They can sometimes be in the ICU, you know, whether it's with the flu or COVID or um, some other like liver disease. I mean, you know, anything. We even deal with cancer in pregnancy. I've had patients, I think I consulted you for a patient once with thyroid cancer in pregnancy not too long ago. Right. Um, we have brain tumors and, and breast cancer and pregnancy, all kinds of things. So that's the other half, or we might be consulted for, you know, issue during labor and delivery and to help with that or help with a complicated C-section. Now, depending on where you are in the country, um, high-risk pregnancy specialists, sometimes some do deliveries and some don't. I still do some, yes, I still do delivery for high, for for patients and so I'm doing still the full spectrum. It's not the majority of the practice, it's a very small part of my practice still, but um, um, I expect it to be growing and doing more of that in the future. Um, and so uh, it's, it's basically a mix. Now, 
I think in, in the LA community, it just depends on where you are. Most of the pregnancy intelligence are not doing deliveries here, but um, I am, and, and I know another one is. So you yourself had a very ironic situation, right? You just recently had twins, didn't you? Oh, yeah. So the ironic, <laughs> very ironic. We, my wife, had, had twins, and which is twin pregnancies. That's another high-risk thing we deal with, twins and triplets. Um, it, it sometimes quadruples so is much less common these days. Um, but yeah, we had twins, um, and it was a high risk pregnancy. She had issues with the babies. So when you have twins, you have the placenta or placentas has to feed two babies, or uterus has to feed two babies, and sometimes one or both don't grow as well. So we had issues with that, and then she broke her water. I think it was like around 30 weeks. The pregnancy was quite early, then was admitted to the hospital. And about 10 or 11 days later, around 31 weeks, she delivered. Um, and then the babies were in the neonatal ICU for two months. during, And this was during the height of the pandemic in uh, May of last year. You know, it was, it was difficult because they wouldn't allow us to go visit at the same time and whatnot. But I went through the whole high-risk pregnancy and experienced the whole thing. And it really opened my eyes um to be able to i thought i you know was understanding my patients well and i and i did but once actually going through it through everything i mean all the medications we use and everything we have to use um it really opened up my eyes and now i can connect with my patients in a much different level i bet it's probably made you such a much better doctor right yeah absolutely and how how old are your kids now um a year and a half uh, and they're both doing okay. Yeah, they're doing great. Very cute. Very beautiful. Are they? Is... There two girls or a girl and a boy? Yeah, two girls. They're two not girls. identical. Yeah, and two girls and they're not identical. Um, and then uh, she decided that we should get pregnant six months after, so we have a six-month-old baby boy. Wait, you have another baby? Yeah. So in between, I'm telling you, this COVID, no one. It's really messed up communication with everyone because. <laughs> Wow. You know, we don't, don't get to see each that. other. Yeah, I have three yeah. kids under two years old. Yeah, so kind of like what I come like Irish triplets, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, you must be exhausted. So my wife more than I, but yeah. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is hard because um, I used to wake up early, and I have to wake up early because I have to go help the baby give milk or get the baby to sleep. I used to wake up early and run to the hospital, and I don't have as much freedom. Wow. Um, but so, yeah, we have three under. Holy cow. Two. Are you going to have more? Um, maybe one more, but uh, to wow. be maybe what's, one more. what's the oldest mom you've seen you've been involved with that's had a baby? Oh, 55. Wow. 55. That was going to be my question, too. I didn't expect it to be over 50. Okay. And did it go totally fine or were there glitches and stuff? Yeah, How usually, common is that? Usually the, the most common complications in um, what we call very advanced maternal age or gestational diabetes, um, pre-clamps or high blood pressure pregnancy and early delivery. Um, she did well. She ended up getting high blood pressure pregnancy, but otherwise they, did, they, they do well. And we monitor them very closely. And I think it makes a big difference. How common is, is pregnancy over 50 for you? Do you see it a lot? Yeah, I mean, so especially in, in this, com in, in our community in LA, uh, it, you know, it's quite common to see 
definitely over 40s like and for sure over 45 um over 50 and over is less common but we see quite a bit because again we get refer we get these patients referred to us so we see quite a bit right and what's the the most number of, of babies you've seen born quadruplets wow which and is very that, high risk do those have to be c-sections or they're vaginal births yeah or? yeah yeah and triplets are highly recommend C-section. I've had a lot of friends that have developed diabetes when they, after they became pregnant. Why is that? Yeah. So gestational diabetes is a condition um, that is um, diabetes and pregnancy. So there's pre-pregnant, pre-existing or pre-pregnancy diabetes and there's gestational diabetes. Um, and the difference is just if you had diabetes before you became pregnant or you got diabetes while you're pregnant. Um, the pregnancy type is caused by the placenta giving off uh, various hormones and factors which block the um, your insulin in your body from working well. So it decreases your your, the ability of your insulin. They're basically blocking the function of your insulin. And so um, insulin is important to help uh, your the glucose, the sugar in your blood that you get from food to go inside the cells and be used for energy. And so if the insulin is not working, then your blood sugar, your sugar stays in your blood instead of going in the cells, and so your blood sugar goes high. And when you test your blood sugar, it's high, and so you have, that's what diabetes is, is having elevated blood sugar. And so the reason is that the placenta is making these factors that block the insulin from working. Okay. Um, there's nothing you can do to like prevent that. It just happens. So it just happens. You can try diet and walking, but, um, and improving, especially pre-pregnancy, you know, if you're, because, so there's some of the risk factors are like having a family history of diabetes, being overweight or obese. Um, um, and so, or being older and so, which you can't change, but if you can, make you know improve your weight or diet and exercise pre-pregnancy you can reduce your risks of getting diabetes however you can be totally fit and young and healthy and still get gestational diabetes is less common but um ultimately it's caused by the placenta so i have a couple of questions one is um lauren and i shared with lauren an article about a woman who and i think it's been going on now for a while already who delivered babies after a uterus transplant. What's what's the story with that? What what do you know about that stuff? How common is that? So uterus transplant is not that many that have been done before. Um, it's usually in women who don't have a, a uterus um, or they have um, some kind of uterine uh, anomaly or abnormality that develops later in life, like Asherman syndrome with um, which causes like scarring of the Do you manage uterus. those? Preg- would you no, would so, be the doctor managing those? Yeah, once they become pregnant. But the, the, if this is, un, it's not, uh, no, we have, but we haven't had anyone at Cedars. You know, they're done at specialized centers and they're, it's like, it's really investigational. So those patients are kept, you know, within that facility wherever they got the transplant. But basically um, you can get a uterus from a living or deceased donor um and uh again it's usually in women who don't have a uterus to begin with for example there's a condition called mayer rokatansky kauser kuster hauser syndrome or mrkh syndrome um, or women with asherman syndrome if they have a uterus 
then then you need to remove that uterus before you transplant the new one. Um, and then there's risk, like any other transplant, of rejection or infection or blood clots. And so they'll be on immunosuppressive protocols and be monitored closely. And then they'll... When the baby's usually, born, do they, do they remove the uterus at the same time? Yeah, mm-hmm. usually, yes. Wow. So you, you can um, actually, like, donate a uterus? Like, someone can give you their uterus? So there's living or... Yeah, you can have living or a deceased donor. Wow. wow. Do you think a man will ever get pregnant? Um, yes, it's possible. I mean, in, I think in theory, if you can, uh, I don't know, for, I mean, okay, well, I should say, I'm not sure. It's so new, or trans, but, you know, or a trans patient. Yeah, that for sure. I mean, well, some of those, like, they retain, depends on what kind you're talking about. But some of them, you know, have, they can be male, but originally female, they have. No, but I, I mean, I mean, a male to female patient get pregnant you know with a get a uterus transplant and then have a baby you think that'll happen i think in theory it may be possible i don't know the science i think though in in theory it's possible if you can get the blood if there's enough if you can figure out the circulation to feed the uterus um they probably would have to and they make like a vagina you can probably um figure it out um wow have you ever seen the movie? Junior? I, I don't know that first fact. What movie? We, what we movie, that up. Have you ever seen the movie Junior starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito where Arnold Schwarzenegger has a baby? Neither of you? It happened I, 30 years ago in this movie. I may have seen bits of it, but I, I don't I didn't know that he had a baby. Is Danny no. DeVito his baby? Uh, no. I think he's like his, his friend or his brother or something. I forget what his role in it is. I think he's in it. But yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger definitely has a baby. Do you have any time ever to watch movies or TV shows? No, honestly, if I have time, I'd rather go take a break, sleep, <laughs> exercise, hang out with the kids, or eat. <laughs> what? You know, we always end with, like, a recommendation, like what you're watching, what you're reading. I mean, it could be, like, years ago. You have or any podcast or anything, yeah. like, other than Gross Anatomy podcast that I know you listen okay, to. Okay, you know what? No, why don't we be honest? What do I watch at night before going to bed? Um, I will be very honest. I check Instagram and there's a few people's stories that I always watch. Um, there is one, a couple of plastic surgeons. I always, I just think they're funny. I don't even care. I don't do plastic surgery or anything. I just think that the doctors are funny and they're entertaining. And, and I watch gross anatomy, believe it or not. <laughs> hey, all right. I don't even know how I came. This is how, I mean, I just ran. I don't know how I came by gross anatomy on my Instagram. Not too long ago. Just like, after all these years of knowing Jason, I had no idea he had a gross anatomy. Mm-hmm. And I still don't know how it came up in my feed. And then I added it. It had to just be a month ago. And then I saw Jason in the hall. I'm like, hey, I'm watching. I've been watching you. And then he's like, come join us for a podcast. And I I look for gross anatomy every night to see what, what's on and what was. So my shows are really, believe it, I'm probably a lot of people as Instagram. Um, that I've never had that answer I before. I like that one. I love that. That's the yes. best answer ever. Because you said if I can share something that I saw like years ago, but I'd rather be honest with you. Why? Why years ago? <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. But, um, and you said you haven't started doing. You haven't started doing TikTok yet. Watching TikToks yet? So unless it, unless so, I guess some people do TikTok and then they post it on their Instagram. 
then I see it on, on there. I don't have a TikTok account. Right. Actually, I, I tried getting one and then it was like too complicated figuring out who to add. And so I just, <laughs> if they, if they show it on their Instagram, that's how I see it. Yeah. I know. It's amazing how TikTok, you could just go, you know, you could be looking at a TikTok and the next thing you know, like an hour has passed looking at videos. You know, <laughs> the latest. The latest thing I'm watching is on gross anatomy is I'm still waiting for the ending of your story about this uh, story time Saturdays and Tuesdays about, but there's a story about it came and took pictures of you in school and then the whole mafia thing. And I think it was your dad who tried to tell you to go on and you said, no, and there's still, I think the last part left. <laughs> yeah. it's a Stay tuned. Thing. I'm not, yeah. no spoilers. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that's how we always end. So do you have any other questions, Dr. Cohen? This has been very informative. I didn't know anything about maternal fetal medicine before. No, it's totally cool. I, I love it. Thank okay. you, Dr. Rad. Thank you very uh, much. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.